Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. You guys are quick in prayer tonight. That, and that's okay. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Let's uh, let's go to First Samuel 18, and we want to talk tonight about David, a most wanted man. He was um, Saul wanted to destroy him. God wanted to use him, and some people wanted David to lead them or save them, rescue them in some way, and others uh, wanted David to protect them. Um, God wanted David, and so he searched him out and he found him. And uh made me think of a question that I heard a long time ago, or maybe a, a statement. Are leaders born or are they made? And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know the exact answer to that, because I do know that God knows those who will be leaders before they're born. He knows our days, and he's aware of all that and foreknowledge. But it seems to me that every leader in some way has to be made, too. Would you agree to that? Like, if we're going to communicate, we have to learn language. And so there's a process of developing. If that doesn't happen, then there is no leadership. And as we talk about David, I I couldn't help but think about uh, Michelangelo's statue of David in Florence. You guys have seen that probably. If we had a picture of it, we'd have to put a little fig leaf somewhere, wouldn't we? Uh, but it's considered by many to be one of the uh, most perfect sculptures out of marble uh, ever to exist. And I, I was reading a little bit on that today, and I found out that um, they picked this piece of marble out of um, the Tuscan Alps, and it took them two years to get it from the Alps down to Florence, which means they they carried it over land, they took it by sea, and then and then on into Florence. And when it got there, it was a marvel. Everybody wanted to come look at it. And they nicknamed it, ironically, do you know what it was called, anybody? <laughs> that would have been good. The giant. Because it was, nobody had seen in a thousand years, nobody had seen a piece of marble that big. It was 17 foot long and fifth, between 15 and, seven, and 17 feet long. It weighed six tons. And they left it there. They had hired a a sculptor to make um, this particular piece of marble into a sculpture of David, somebody else besides Michelangelo, and they had a they had in mind a series of uh, sculptures to adorn a chapel, and so this piece sat in the grass for a while, and the sculptor came to deal with it, and he cut a hole in the middle of it, and uh, the people of Florence were so upset they decided to fire him. So he got off the job. They hired another sculptor to deal with it, and after a period of time, uh, he had chiseled away a little bit on it, but not gotten very far, and um, they fired him too. Well, finally, there was this young, up-and-coming sculptor named Michelangelo, and they brought him on. I don't know if you knew this. It's just extra, but I didn't know if you knew that uh, Michelangelo and da Vinci did not get along. They did not like each other. In fact, uh, they didn't have some very nice words to say to each other, but uh, Michelangelo is this up-and-coming sculptor, and they brought it to a certain place and stood it up. It had sat in that place for the better part of three decades, uh, nobody doing anything with it except some minor, minor chiseling and some hole drilling that got people fired. They brought it, and they stood it up, and uh, Michelangelo wanted it was in a very public place, and there was no way to move easily something like that into a workshop, and he wanted privacy, so they built um, some partitions to partition off that. And he worked in that little partition area for two years, um, sculpting the David. And when it was done, uh, it was a beautiful figure. And I thought, um, you know, you've heard this described before, that when you want to find the sculpture that's inside the piece that you're working on, you just take away everything that's not that. And I think that's something like what God is doing with David. David was selected to be a leader. He was anointed by God. But there is a time that I think he needed to go through. And I'm not suggesting that Saul's rage against him was necessarily God-designed. But I think that God can take 
things like that, and he can put us through um, the crucible. He can put us through the fire. He can forge out of us something better than what we would be if we had all ease. Uh, I heard many years ago that um, they tried this experiment when they built biodomes. They were growing trees inside of them, and they found out that when trees got to be a certain height, they would just bend over and break. And uh, can anybody guess the reason for that? There's no wind. No wind to cause them to bend. No resistance against them. They grow up in relative ease, and they don't get strong. And uh, you find that some of the strongest woods that we have, there are strong woods in uh, difficult climates like the Amazon, but, uh, you know, when they go to make baseball bats, they don't they don't make it out of balsa wood. If you know what balsa wood is, it's like almost like foam. Uh, they make them out of mountain ash that grow up in really harsh, cold climates. And so there's something about things like uh, difficulty that can cause, uh, cause people to grow character in their lives. And I think David has gone through that. So when the question comes, are leaders born or are they made? Every leader is born. Okay, that's the simple answer to that. Uh, but I think also it's true every leader is made through circumstances that they go through in life. Now, last week we talked about David and Goliath, and uh, you would think that would propel David into a place of prominence. He'd be King Saul's favorite. Uh, the whole nation would, uh, you know, celebrate King David Day, or not King David Day, but uh, David the Warrior Day. He's not king yet. Um, and instead, we find something a little bit different takes place. And as soon as he kills Goliath, we start to see something change in his relationship with Saul. And so we want to start with that. We're covering a lot. I don't have the our screen tonight, we're going to cover a lot of uh, area in terms of Scripture, like from chapter 18 on through the rest of the book, really covers life of David on the run. And so we're, gonna, we're just going to peek in on all that, take a bird's eye view, and hit on some, I think, important points here. So to start us off, though, let's look at 1 Samuel 18 and verses 1 through 16. Uh, It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, uh, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul uh, with singing and dancing and joyful songs with timbrels and lyres. And they, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And automatically we start to say, uh-oh, something's not going to go well here. Verse 8 says, Saul was very angry. This uh, refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in the house. While David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. And so he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns, and everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successfully he, uh, how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign. So there's a popularity that's growing, and uh, one of the things that we see through uh, the rest of First Samuel is that not only is it all of Israel, but even in Saul's own family, they love David. They love David enough to protect him against their father. Like uh, Jonathan does that. Um, Michael, his wife, will do that. That she loves David and protects him from her father. Even though uh, both of them must know that David's survival means the loss of a dynasty for King Saul. And so, 
What causes the breakdown between David and Saul? The fracture wasn't anything to do uh, on David's side. It wasn't anything that was related to his part in the relationship. And and I think this is true of all of our relationships, is that there's a possibility a person can do all the right things and still find there's a fracture in a relationship. Have you found that to be true? The Bible says in Romans 12 that as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone, right? Do you hear the other side of what that means? As much as it depends upon you means that whatever in your power to do, live at peace with everyone. Uh, there's another side, though, isn't there? Tom, there's two people. You can do all that you can do, and I think David did that, but it wasn't returned from Saul. You see some things about David in uh, these chapters. I'm just going to mention them. I don't have references for them, but if you know the, uh, the Bible at this point, you know that these are there. David was devoted to God. We, we see that. So the fracture isn't that Saul is serving the Lord with all of his heart and David is uh, following after some other God. And so there's some kind of a religious fracture there. If there's, there's any fracture, it's not because David is not devoted to the Lord. He's devoted wholeheartedly to the Lord. Are you with me on that? And then the second thing that we see is that David was invested in the good of God's people. When he comes onto the scene with the with Goliath as they're there in the valley of Elah and there there's this fight that's breaking out and Goliath is coming out and taunting the armies of Israel for 40 days. David is concerned, how can you let this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God? So he's concerned about the well-being of the people of God. We hear an echo of this kind of thing in Solomon's prayer when God asks him, how can I bless you? Solomon says, just let me have wisdom so that I can rule your people well. This is like the Old Testament equivalent of seeking first the kingdom of God. Okay, So it's a concern for the well-being of the people of God. Okay, And then the third thing that we see, and, and by the way, before we move on, this ought to be Saul's primary concern. He is the king after all. His primary concern ought to be the well-being of the people of God. But increasingly what we find is that he's not concerned about the people of God. He's concerned about himself. Okay, So... This is David, that he's constantly concerned with the good of the people of God. In fact, one of the things that we'll see um, later on in 1 Samuel is that he's, he's rating the Negev. This is not just like a, a little statement about what's keeping David occupied. It's not that. This is telling us something about the fact that David is doing what Joshua set out to do. He's purging the land of those nations that were living within the land. He's raiding. He's doing the things that King Saul should have been doing. He's taking possession of the promised land. That's what he's doing, even though he's not sitting on the throne yet. So his concern is for the good of the people of God. The third thing we see about David that shows us this breakdown isn't his fault is that David was humble before authority. This isn't just when David is um, fighting Goliath. Um, you know, he's he's there to serve Saul, but, but even later on, when the opportunity comes for him to shortcut all of his problems, take Saul out, and become king, he refuses to touch the Lord's anointed. So he's concerned about the authority, and even, even when he cuts the corner off of Saul's robe later on, when they find him in the cave, right, he feels guilty for that a little bit, like... I want to touch the Lord's anointed. And so there's a, there's a concern for authority. He's humble before authority. He even says one time, who have you come out? You've come out to find a flea. Like, who am I that you should come out and bring an army against me? And then the fourth thing is that David was ready to serve. In whatever way it was needed, David was ready to serve Saul. If Saul needed him, come play the harp to help him with his foul moods brought on by an evil spirit. David's there to do that. If he needs him to kill a giant, he's ready to do that. He says, hey, go uh, slay a hundred Philistines and bring back their foreskins. And then you can have, uh, I mean, there's some weird stuff in there, isn't there? Then you can have the daughter in marriage. And what does he do? He does 200, kills 200 Philistines and brings those back. And then, uh, of course, uh, go out and um, lead my armies. And he's willing to do that. Whatever it is that Saul needs of him, he's willing to to serve. And because David was like this, the Bible says that God was with him in these things and prospered him. And so he has success in what he does because he's putting the kingdom of God before himself. 
And I think that would be true of us, is that as we set out for God's purposes, make that the pursuit of our lives, God will bless those pursuits. And, and it's almost like saying this, that God, not, hey, look at what I'm doing and come bless me, okay? I think that's kind of the wrong approach to it. I think the right approach to it is, God, what are you doing? And I want to do that and get doing that. They used to, I've said this before, it's kind of cheesy, but... Um, they used to say in old-time Pentecost, if you want the blessing of God, you've got to get under the spot where the glory comes out. And it means get in line with what God's doing, and he'll pour out upon you the blessing that you need. So the fracture isn't from David's side. Which side is it from? It's from Saul's side. The fracture in the relationship is because of Saul. You see, Saul, while David was there, and just for comparison's sake, uh, David was devoted to God. Saul was disobedient to God. When he was supposed to wait on Samuel, he didn't wait on Samuel. When he was supposed to take out uh, Doeg, uh, not Doeg, I'm sorry, um, who am I thinking of here? Agog, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. He didn't, he didn't obey God, and he kept back some of the, uh, the cattle and other things, and he said, well, I'm just going to sacrifice those. And remember, that Achan died for similar sins. Okay, remember, you're not supposed to touch the devoted things when you go into Jericho, and he did. He buried them under his tent, and uh, he suffered the consequences. Saul was disobedient to God, and therefore, at after that, that second infraction, and I suppose God sees more than on heart because it doesn't seem that big a deal to us, but it was a big deal to God. Because that was Saul's responsibility was to obey the Lord. If he's going to be in leadership, he needs to be trustworthy. And uh, he disobeyed God. And so God rejected him as leader. And the interesting thing is, I don't have this uh, in the notes, but it occurred to me again that Saul was concerned with appearance more than he was reality. Because you remember when he's rejected, the thing that he asked Samuel to do, go back with me. Otherwise, people will see that you're not with me anymore, and they're going to wonder. So he was more concerned about the fact that he was going to look like he no longer had authority than the fact that God had really rejected him, and that's kind of sad. That's the difference between David and Saul, one of the differences. And then the second thing is that Saul was invested in the survival of his own kingdom while David was invested in the good of God's people. After a period of time, Saul moves away from going on combat missions against the Philistines, and, and some of those fights he even neglects in order to go in pursuit of David. So he's not concerned so much about the survival of the kingdom of Israel as he is his own throne. And I can see a parallel sometimes in our lives when we are more concerned with building our own kingdom than we are with building the kingdom of God. That's uh, King Saul move right there. The The third thing is that Saul was proud and dismissive of authority, which in his case was Samuel speaking to him. He was dismissive of authority. David was honoring to authority. He was humble before authority. Saul was uh, dismissive of authority, and he rejected the wisdom and the prophecy of Samuel. And then we find the fourth thing is that Saul was demanding to be served rather than what David was doing as he was ready to serve. I don't know if you remember, um, we didn't talk about it in this series, but I don't know if you remember when Saul was anointed. Like When, when Samuel comes to anoint Saul, he's real humble, isn't he? Like, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just a backwoods hick from Nowhereville. And uh, God anoints him. And, and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, he's turned into a new man, and he starts to take up leadership things that God's put in his hands. And Samuel says to him, whatever your hand finds to do, uh, do it as to the Lord. And, and he's called to, to do that, and he begins to become the man that God, I think, was calling to be. But something changes in him, and he starts to think more of himself and serving himself, and he's making more and more demands upon uh, people around him. He's upset with Jonathan. Why are you Why are you sparing David and not protecting me, your father? He's demanding to be served. He demands something similar of Michael. And when the priests of Nob have spared David and protected him, he's he's acting like they've betrayed him. 
Why didn't you call me? Why didn't you turn him over to me? And so he's demanding to be served rather than being a servant. God was not with him in these things. God was with David. God was not with Saul in these things, and he was tormented by an evil spirit. Verse 9 says, this is First uh, Samuel 18, verse 9, that he kept, a, in the NIV, he kept a close eye on David. Some translations help us not to miss the meaning here. Uh, this is not an eye of care, like you can find some scriptures that talk about how the Lord's eye is upon someone. Um, you get the tone previously that he's worried about his kingdom, and then he says he keeps a close eye on David, and, and some translations say he keeps a suspicious eye or a jealous eye on David. So he's worried about him. He's watching him. He's worried about him. Something in his feelings towards David changes in the middle of this. Saul's feelings towards David, the Bible either describes or explains some of these feelings. In 17 uh, verse 33, it doesn't say it like this, but if you hear what Saul says, you can you can see it. Remember, David says, I'm going to let me go fight the giant. And Saul says, you can't fight him. He's been fighting since he's young. You're just a kid. So the first kind of attitude that he has towards David is dismissive. It's not outright said, but it's there. He's dismissive, like you you don't have the power to defeat this giant. Well, it was never about that, was was it? Um, in verse uh, 9 of chapter 18, he was suspicious of David. And then chapter 18, verse 12 says he was... He was afraid of David. And then again in verse 15, it says he was afraid of David. And then verse 29 says he was, and it says it exactly like this, still more afraid of David. So he's growing in his fear of David. And there's a sense in which that it's not David that he's afraid of. Okay, hear me out on this. I think it's the Lord who is with David that he's really afraid of. Because Saul knows deep down, because of the Lord, that David will win. And so Jonathan says this to David early on in chapter 23, verse 17, that he says, you will be king and I'll be your first in command next to you. And then he says, even my father knows this. Jonathan gives us a little bit of insight into what's going on in Saul's mind. Even my father knows this. So this is what I think Saul is really afraid of is the coming judgment. And David is growing more and more powerful. He sees that God is with David and not himself. And so I would suggest to you one of the ways we can understand this is that what he's really afraid of is God in David that he, that makes him afraid. And we see him afraid of other things too. Um, we see him in uh, chapter 28, verse 5. It tells us the Philistine army, when he saw the Philistine army, he was afraid and terror filled his heart. So he knows that his time is coming soon. Okay, and chapter 20, verse, or 28, verse 20, uh, he goes to, this is so ironic, he kicks out the witches out of the land, right? And then in chapter 28, when he can't, Samuel's not there anymore, he's got no prophet that he can call upon. He goes to the witch of Endor and has her call up Samuel, an apparition of Samuel. I don't understand all of that, uh, but uh, when this apparition of Samuel or the ghost of Samuel or whatever it is exactly that, that comes up, the words are words of judgment, and it says that Saul was filled with fear. He was filled with fear. And then in verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 21, uh, the witch returns, and she's like, okay, I've done what you've asked me to do. Are you going to kill me now? And it says that she saw him, and she saw that he was greatly shaken. So Saul is afraid because he knows that his time is coming. So where is the where's the rift in the relationship? Is there anything that David's done? I would suggest no, that David saw and he stuck around even through a couple thrown spears. Do you know that he didn't leave after the first spear was thrown? And I, I think there's something instructive about that that in in not in every relationship when it just gets hard can we just run away from it. Are you with me? I don't, we, this isn't something we came to church on Wednesday night to hear. We'd rather hear the opposite of that. But take the easy road, do whatever you need to do. But uh, that wasn't the case, that David didn't just flee right away. 
he got out of the way of the spear, but he stuck by Saul as long as he could until he felt that his if he stayed any longer, one was going to find him. And so he eventually left and he became David the fugitive. David the fugitive. Okay, so he's a man most wanted. He's wanted by God to be king, but that's for a time in the future. God's going to take him, and I think he's going to mold him and shape him through this experience. And if I understand the timeline of Scripture right, this is going to be about the better part of a decade. I don't know if you've been through a wilderness, but I imagine it probably wasn't a decade long. Can you picture that, like going through a wilderness? Not a, not a wilderness with God, because I think David stayed close to God, but I think he had moments like that. Like when he cries out, oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek your face. I long for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Thus I've beheld you in the sanctuary, and I've seen your power and your glory. I think he understands what it's like to feel something of a distance from, from God. But I don't think that's exactly what we're talking about here. I'm talking about a delayed promise that, that has taken him through a difficulty where the promise and the purpose of God is being challenged. You know, you can see this pattern again and again in Scripture, that there's a promise, and then there's a problem, and then there's the fulfillment of the promise that comes later. Can you see that again and again? If you think about the stories, he's been anointed, and that doesn't mean the next day that he's going to sit on the throne. There's some growth that needs to take place. There's some time that needs to pass. Perhaps David needs to mature a little bit. Maybe he needs to learn something about leading people. Maybe he needs to uh, be hardened in his resolve or know what his purpose is or experience some more battle and know what it's like to trust God while he's on the run. I don't know exactly what all of this is that's going on. Uh, There is a good book. I don't know if you've read the book, A Tale of Three Kings by... um, Edward, help me out, somebody that's read it. Anybody? <laughs> well, you can Google it, A Tale of Three Kings. It's going to come to me. Gene Edwards. I have the first name uh, on the back. Uh, Gene Edwards, if you read that, it's a leadership, and it talks about David's relationship with Saul, David's relationship with Solomon and different leadership uh, styles and growth, and there's some really good stuff in there. But I think through all of this, God is developing something in in David. And so he has this time spent on the run, which I think is the better part of the decade. And I can't mention every significant detail that happens in these next few chapters because we don't have time for all of that. Uh, but you'll know. But I've weighed carefully, uh, which I think is central to the message here tonight. And so in chapter 18, we see Saul getting increasingly suspicious of David, and he um, threatens David. I thought if I could, if I had time and I could go through and do a rhyming kind of thing in each one of these, I would have done it, and I would have started with uh, that uh, Saul, uh, with growing fears, hurled spears. So if you want to, chapter 18, and then you develop the rest of the rhyming uh, along these other lines if you want. But chapter 19 would be that David is helped by his wife, who is Saul's daughter, Michael. And so they set camp around uh, his house. And in fact, this is talked about in one of the Psalms, um, Psalm 59, if you want to cross-reference that, Psalm 59, 1 through 4 in particular, deliver me from my enemies, O God, be my fortress against those who are attacking me, deliver me from the evildoers, save me from men who are after my blood, see how they lie and wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong. They are ready to attack me. Arise to help me look on my plight. And so we hear at the beginning of Psalm 59 that that's the occasion of that psalm is that when Saul sets people around David's house to watch him. And I thought it's interesting that the, the key figure in that psalm is be my fortress, I mean, if there's one place you ought to feel safe, it's your house, right? And if wicked men have gathered around your house to destroy you, you don't feel safe even there. And so he calls upon God to be his fortress in a time like that. Chapter 20, David is helped by Jonathan through arrows uh, to help him escape. And you remember that story, I want to go to Bethlehem because your dad's getting increasingly angry and 
Jonathan says, I don't think he'll do anything, but let's put out a test. I'm going to tell him that you're going to Bethlehem. We'll see how he reacts. And then he has this uh, little arrangement. If he shoots arrows a certain length and tells the boy to go gather them at a certain place, it means stay. And if he tells him to go beyond David and gather them, then it means, David, you better get out of town because daddy's after you. And so, of course, David has to go on the run. And after going on the run uh, in chapter 21, he hides among the priests at Nob where he's hungry and the priests give him the old showbread. Remember that? Jesus referred to that in the Gospels, David eating the showbread. And uh, while he's there, he asks the priests of Nob if they have any weapons, any swords, and they said, well, we've got the sword of Goliath here. Well, I think David should have had that all along, don't you? So he collects the sword of Goliath and he goes his way. That's not all that uh, relates to that story, but we'll have to come back to that in another chapter. So he goes to Gath, and he hides among the Philistines, and he's afraid. David's afraid of uh, the king of the Philistines, and so he acts like he's insane and lets drool fall from his mouth. I mean, this is in the Bible. This is some of the best interesting stuff, and the way I'm doing it, it makes it more boring than it should be. But I want to I want to get through this quick. But go back and read these. It's really it's really interesting uh, what all happens here. So he pretends to be crazy, and then he escapes to the cave at Adullam and is joined by his brothers and about four hundred outcasts, like people who have debts and people who are um, not welcome at home anymore, and they have to go out and they gather around him. Somewhere along the way, he gets a couple hundred more, but uh, initially there's four hundred outcasts and his family. And during chapter 22, Saul calls upon the priests of Naba. While David was there, there was an Edomite named Doeg that uh, saw him there and went and told on him to, went and told on the priests to King Saul. He called them to account, and he killed all of them. Saul said, kill him. His own men wouldn't do it. But Doeg the Edomite said, I'll do it. And he killed over 80 of them. And uh, one of them escaped Abiathar with the ephod, and uh, he took it to David, and David uh, was able to call upon the name of the Lord through that. Chapter 23, David liberates a town called Kila. The priest has come with the ephod, and David inquires of the Lord. Philistines are attacking this city named Kila, and uh, he says, should we, uh, should we go out and help them, and will the Lord give us victory? And the ephod, I, I assume in this context, they hear from God that, yes, he will give you victory. And they do. They go and they defeat the Philistines as they attack Kyla. And then afterwards, David asks another question. He says, will the uh, people of Kyla um, betray me to Saul? And the answer comes back, yes, they will. So much for gratitude, right? And so Saul, uh, David excuse me, gets out of there. Saul hears about it, heads there, but David's, David's already gone. Um, from here, there's a bunch of narrow escapes where the way the Bible describes it is that Saul's on one side of the mountain, David's on another. I mean, we could be going, as we're talking about this, we could be going through not just months, but years as we're describing these events. So David escapes, and then he hides in chapter 24 in the cave of En Gedi. You remember this? It's little caves. In fact, some people think they know exactly where that cave is. I don't know. I can't be certain, but he hides in a cave. He and his men, and it must be deep enough that they can all get in there. And Saul comes in to go to the bathroom. The Bible tells us that. He goes in to relieve himself. And while he's doing that, um, one of David's men says, there it is. This is your opportunity to shortcut right to the throne. Do you know sometimes when shortcuts present themselves, they're not the will of God? It's true. Not every shortcut is from God. Well, this is, looks so easy. That must be from God. Easy does not mean it's the will of God. We have to ask the other questions like, is it the right thing to do? Is it the wise thing to do? What kind of repercussions are going to come from this? Will I violate conscience? Will I violate God's word? Not, is this easy? We've made easy to be a pragmatic determiner of God's will, and that's a shame. So one of the guys says, here's your chance. And he says, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. So they slip up and, uh, and cut a piece of Saul's robe off just as proof. And then Saul 
gets out of the cave, and they get up the hill a little ways, and David pops out and says, the Lord delivered you into my hands, and I want you to know I'm not trying to kill you. And here's the proof in this piece of his robe. And, of course, Saul swears off the fact, I'm not going to hunt you down anymore. You're a better man than me, things like that. May the Lord bless you. And then he goes home. And we would think, all right, there's proof. But it's not enough for Saul. He's still trying to protect his, his own little kingdom. In chapter 25, David has his patience tested by a man named Nabal who refuses hospitality. And uh, David loses his temper and he wants to kill Nabal. And that would have been brought guilt upon him before the Lord. And instead, the interesting thing is Abigail, Nabal's wife, comes out and placates David by, by uh, showing uh, kindness to him and calms him down and pleads for David's mercy. And then, you know, later that, David's, that Nabal ends up falling over dead and David marries uh, Nabal's wife. Okay. Well, after that, um, we see in chapter 26 that David is betrayed by the Ziphites. He goes up into the hill country, and these people are calling on Saul and telling Saul that here uh, David is and come out against him. And you can read about this in Psalm 54. It says when it's describing that David was uh, betrayed by the Ziphites there. And let me see if I can find that one real quick. Psalm 54, let's, let's just read 1 through 7 here real quick. Uh, when the Ziphites reported David hiding among them, and there's actually two occasions where this happened, and they betrayed him both times. Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. I will sacrifice a freewill offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all of my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Psalm written for the occasion of being betrayed by the people of uh, Ziph or the Ziphites. Well, after that, he escapes to the Philistines. And uh, he's living among the Philistines at a, a very key time in Israel's history. Chapter 28 deals with the witch of Endor, so it's not really as relevant to where we're going with all of this. But go back and read that. That's interesting, too. And it's, it's, a val- it's an, uh, an important part of the story. But as we talk about David, David's not in that chapter. Saul hears this final warning. David's living among the Philistines. And he's actually getting ready to go to war on the Philistine side against Israel. So, isn't that interesting? So, at this point, he is getting ready to do that, but uh, providentially, the Philistines' uh, generals tell the king, they don't want David to fight on their side. We don't know what this guy's going to do. Here's why that's so important, is that this battle they're getting ready to go into is the one where Saul is going to die. And if David is found fighting on that side, it's going to always look like He's one guilty for winning a victory against Saul. And he doesn't even know it yet. So providentially, God protects him from going into battle with the Philistines against King Saul. And so David goes back and, um, and goes back into the hill country, uh, I think, and, and comes down into the area of Jezreel. So he's providentially spared there. And then chapter 30 tells us there's, there's things going on in that battle, but chapter 30 tells us that David is raiding the Negev. And what's interesting about this story is that he's doing what King Saul should have been doing but wasn't really doing. And so as he's on the run, he's still taking care of God's business. And he's raiding the Negev, and he's fighting the battles uh, Israel was fighting to possess the promised land. And when he comes back from fighting... And doing the thing that he feels God has called him to do. Um, They come back to Ziklag and in the distance they see that there's billows of smoke rising from the town where they've left their families in safety. And what we find out is that the Amalekites have raided that area. And we hear there that David's men are so distraught, all of them are so distraught, they're weeping and wailing 
and they don't know what they're going to do. And they even consider, and David's brothers must be among them, they're ready to stone David to death. And it tells us that David, when he found strength in the Lord his God, and he got up courage and he asked the Lord, he said, if we pursue, will we overtake them? Yes. Will we win the victory? Yes. Will, you get, will we get our stuff back and our, our families back? Yes. And so he gathers the men and they go out and they go recapture their families. And so at the end of that, they uh, return to Ziklag. And then in chapter 31, Saul is wounded in battle and he takes his own life. And that's the end of the book. Okay, so that's kind of a bird's eye view of what's going on in this wilderness experience. But the thing I want to point out here as we draw this to a close is when you, you're in a wilderness of any kind or a, the situation where it drives David from the cities and he's wandering about from place to place and it's where he goes next is always determined by King Saul, where he's coming from. And you never know where the enemy is going to be coming from and where you're going to find safety. And so when you're in a wilderness kind of experience like that, uh, it's important that you keep a clear eye on purpose. What's, what's the purpose of this? And Geographically, uh, the direction was all over the place. Um, you know, it, it, you know, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, has anybody been on that? It's just like craziness. There's no clear direction. You're going every which way. And I think it must have been something like that for David. And when you're geographically directed all over the place, it's hard to see purpose in it. But that's the point, is that when we're geographically all over the place, like David was, or we're going through that kind of wild, that kind of wild ride, it's important that we be theologically straight. Okay, so geographically the direction might be all over the place, but theologically David was going straight towards God. And the wilderness, it's gonna test our direction with difficulty. David's called to be king, and uh, the question then I think becomes, are you just going to get in survival mode or are you going to advance in terms of the kingdom? Because I think sometimes we get in wilderness places like that and we get in survival mode. And instead of moving forward with God, we're stalled, thinking about ourselves. And here, David's not doing that. He could have, he could have sat back and waited out the time for King Saul to die in battle or done whatever. He's not sitting back and waiting. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not stalled. You see that? That's important. That we not get stalled in the things of God. He's, he's walking with God through this, and he's advancing the kingdom. See, whenever you see a, a wilderness in the Bible, usually it's a place of testing, isn't it? Right? Like uh, in the wilderness, God tested his people and their hearts. And in the wilderness, um, you see them being tested uh, and tempted at times. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And I think we see a similar thing with David. Though he's not in the wilderness through the whole fugitive life that he has, uh, it's during some of that. And the question will be, what kind of person are you going to be with God when you're going through times like this? Okay, Because David is a wanted man. Somebody's hunting him. And he needs to decide, am I just going to make that my identity or am I going to be a, continue to be a man after God's own heart? Is he really David the fugitive or is he more than that? See, I think we can transcend some of our circumstances if we set our eyes on God. Yeah. I, th I think it's the same word that came to Joshua, you to drive out the inhabitants of the land. And I think in doing so, he was also providing for his men the food that they needed. Okay, So it served a dual function, but he's doing what the king of Israel should have been doing. And it was the mandate given to Joshua and Caleb. And it tells us in Judges that they balked at it and they didn't complete their mission. And therefore, they suffered all kinds of uh, difficulties in terms of religious syncretism because they left the people in the land. So David, I think what he's doing is he's, re he's taking up that mandate again. 
Because at the, in 2 Samuel 7, it tells us something that's really key, and it fits into this story, is that, and then David was in his palace, and God gave him rest from all of his enemies on every side. What that's telling us is that he's, he's completed the mandate, okay? So he's doing that, and he's doing it without a throne. And the lesson I get from that is, don't wait till you have position and title to do the work of God. If, if you're called to do something, do it. And then God, your, your gift will make a place for you. Okay? So that's, that's how I read that. I hope that helps. Yeah. All right. So um, I, did, I wanted to mention in terms of his purpose how we see some key points in this fugitive run where David is reminded of his purpose. We see at the beginning of his life on the run in 1 Samuel 20, this is Jonathan telling David, uh, I'm going to go check on my dad and see if he's uh, really trying to kill you or if he's just going through one of his moods. And so then as he's talking with David, he's encouraging him. He says, but, uh, but show me. And it, this all relates to Jonathan recognizing that David will one day be king. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but it's a really humble thing for Jonathan, who would probably be the next king, for him to step back and say, I will support you as king. You know what I mean? That Jonathan, what, what some people could do is jockey for position and say, well, I want to be king. And why should you be king over me? But Jonathan recognizes the purpose of God, recognizes something uh, within David that's, that's God, godly. And he's willing to step back from what he could make a claim on and give that to David. And I think there's true humility in that. So he says this to him. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. This is him essentially saying, I recognize God's call upon your life to be king. And may God go with you. This is the beginning of his refugee run. Like David's not entered into what, what I think is a decade-long fleeing from King Saul. But he's getting these this initial re-encouragement. He's been anointed, but we know that something can happen in our past, and we get a few weeks out, and we forget the significance of it if we don't remind ourselves. Are you with me on that? That, I, You know, even coming to know Jesus, we get far enough away from that. If we don't come back and revisit and remind ourselves of what God has done, that can become more and more blurry and in our past. I think we need to remember the great things God's done. And, remem- and remembering is a very human thing that allows us to bring into the present those things that God has done in the past to reinforce and bolster us as people of God. Well... This thing that Jonathan is calling David to uh, is the thing that when David becomes king, he asks, is there any descendant of Saul or Jonathan that I can show kindness to? Remember that? And one of his, one of his uh, attendants says to him, there's a, a, son named, a grandson of Saul and a son of Jonathan named Mephibosheth. And he's in Lodabar. And they bring, they bring him in. And David says... You can be like my family sitting at my table. You'll be like one of my sons. And the tradition was in that part of the world, if you became king and your dynasty supplanted another dynasty, the conventional wisdom was wipe out all of the previous dynasties so there's no claims to the throne. That's the safe thing to do. But David doesn't do that. He says, you will be a part of my family. In the middle of his fugitive run, um, David has been betrayed by the Ziphites. He's been uh, he's going to be betrayed by the people of Kila, but he gets out of there ahead of it. And uh, Saul finds out that he's been uh, around the Ziphites, and David, uh, excuse me, Jonathan somehow meets David out there. Uh, this is providential too, I think. That <laughs> Saul's been on the hunt for David forever, and he can't find him. Jonathan just hears David somewhere, and he goes right to where he's at. It's kind of marvelous. He goes there, and it tells us 
while David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, uh, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh, and he helped him, listen, he helped him to find strength in God. And how do you do that? How do you, how do you encourage somebody? Here's a, here's a pattern for that. How do you help somebody find strength in God? Don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. God's purpose will prevail, in other words. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. And even my father Saul knows this. <laughs> the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. And so in the middle of this, at the beginning of this, Jonathan encourages him in his purpose. In the middle of it, Jonathan comes along beside, beside him and encourages him in his purpose. This will happen. You can count on it. God promised you. And that's what we need more of. We need people who come alongside somebody and say, don't you remember what God has promised? What he's promised, he will deliver on. We need to do that for one another. And that's what Jonathan did for David. Chapter 30, near the end of his life on the run, I think Jonathan was in battle or he'd been killed. Some people think Jonathan may have even turned against David. It's an uglier view of the story, but there's some evidence that that could have happened. But at the end of his life on the run in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, and this is the Ziklag instance, nobody there is going to encourage David. They want to kill him. So what what does the Bible say? It says, and, and they're not sure in the Hebrew whether this is a passive or an active verb, but it says David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one uh, was bitter in spirit because of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Did he go and find strength or did, did he lean into God and God gave him the strength? I, I don't know. What I do know is that somehow he found strength in the Lord his God. There are times when there's nobody else around to encourage us and we've got to lean in heavy on God. And let him encourage us. We need the encouragement of others. But sometimes we can't, for whatever reason, it's not there. We need to know how to lean into God and find strength in the Lord. Because he has strength for it. Whatever the challenge is, he has strength for it. I imagine David at that point, he didn't want to get up off his bed. Have you ever felt like that? Like the... The default is to turn on some blues music and just lean into your sorrow. <laughs> Let somebody sing you into the deeper blues. It sometimes feels so good to lean into that sadness, doesn't it? But it's not the right thing to do, and it doesn't help. Sometimes we have to fight against the sadness. We have to fight it away. Sometimes we've got to fight against the discouragement and say to it, I'm not going to let that determine what I do. How I feel does not command me. God's promise and his purpose does. So David found strength in the Lord as God, and he went out and did what a good leader would do and what didn't allow himself, his discouragement, to keep him from fulfilling God's purpose. And that's what I think we, we see happening with David. If there's a chisel that God is applying to his life in the wilderness, I think it helps him to learn how to find strength in his purpose. That he, he when the difficult time comes, that he can find strength. He can, he can lean into God, and there's, there's resource that's there for him to be a, the strong leader he needs to be. He learned how to lead men before David sat on a throne. You know, when you're the youngest in the family, you don't get a lot of opportunity to lead. So David led sheep first, okay? And, and that's good lessons to learn how to lead sheep. But then, uh, if he's going to be king, he needs to learn how to lead people, and his brothers weren't naturally going to do it. You know, they were forced into it because um, King Saul was going to go after David's family. And so they were forced to go get on the bandwagon behind David and follow him around as part of his band of misfits and outcasts and those who were fugitives themselves. And while he was doing that, um, he had 600 men that he led, and he learned how to lead as a king while on the run. Interesting, isn't it? He learned how to trust God. Some of his greatest psalms come out of moments like this where he's saying, Lord, they've surrounded me, but I trust in you. He learns how to trust in the Lord. He learns how to hold on to the purposes of God. And he learned how to worship in the midst of difficulty. Read through those psalms. One of the 
interesting things to me about Psalms is how some of them can start off so negative and end so positive. It's like a David Wilkerson sermon. I don't know if you ever heard him preach, but and he came heavy with conviction at the first part. At the end, it was ending with grace, and it was beautiful how he could do that. And you knew every sermon, no matter what his text was, it was going to go something like that. It's uh, kind of like the Psalms, that there might be a difficulty at the beginning, but by the end, there's hope. So he learns how to worship. This portion of David's life has a lot of parallels to our Christian life because um, we have to learn how to do the right thing when we're going through hardship. Hardship is an excuse, is not an excuse for not doing the right thing. There's got to be a more positive way to say that. Okay, hardship's not an excuse. We still have to do the right thing despite the hardship. Uh, don't let your hardship become an excuse. It's probably the the proving grounds. It's an opportunity to be a witness. Um, your you know your kids are watching how you're dealing with difficulty, and if that topples you, what does it say to them about our faith? You know. If you're feeling disconnected from the people of God, um, you can see that in this, that David longs for the sanctuary, and I think some of his psalms probably were written during this time where, uh, you know, how how he longs to stand in the sanctuary with the people of God, and he can't do it at this particular time because he's on the run. You, you know what it's like as a Christian to have that distance between promise and fulfillment. It only might be inches apart but it could take years. Like I think where David grew up and where the throne would would have been, although that moved with David, because I think Saul probably ruled from Gibeah and David eventually from Jerusalem, but it's not a long way apart. Nothing in Israel is a long, long way apart. But if you you can't measure it in feet, sometimes you've got to measure it in years. Isn't it weird how we measure distance like that in time? How far is it from here to Seattle? Three and a half hours. <laughs> well, that's not really accurate, is it? We're measuring it in terms of time, not miles. And that, that a lot of times is the way that these promises play out, is that they come about as a fulfillment in time rather than distance. And you may be feeling, have the feeling of being under attack by human and spiritual foes. And David knew that. But we can learn these lessons as we look here. He knew all of these things. And God used those to shape him as a man of God. And he'll do the same for us as the people of God, too. Our, our difficulties don't have to topple us. Our wildernesses, our, our moments where it feels like life is not going the way we want it to go. That doesn't shape who we are. It's, it's leaning into God and being committed to him that makes us the men and women of God he wants us to be. Amen. Stand with me if you would. I'd like to pray for us together. Um, by the way, there are some other psalms that are related to that. After I pray, if you're interested, I'll mention those real quick. Father, thank you that we have examples like David and Moses and um, Elijah and others who've gone through difficulty in uh, pursuing your will, and, and uh, these things help shape and fashion these men. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you you see all of that, and you're able to use all of that to bring about your good purpose. You promise that um, in all things, God is working things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You're working things together for good. And we trust that you're using our lives for your glory if we'll submit and surrender to you. And it may not be sitting upon thrones. It may be serving in some way, but that's exactly what you called David to do. Every king was to be your servant. So we ask, Lord, for your help in trusting you and in responding in the way that would be uh, bring you glory and help us to grow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We still have seven minutes, so let me share real quick. Uh, when the Lord delivered David from the hands of his enemies and Saul, Psalm 18, uh, when Doeg the Edomite told Saul, um, sorry, uh, when Doeg the Edomite told David about uh, Ahimelech, uh, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, the Ziphites, Psalm 56, um, when the Philistines seized David, 
when he was living in their midst, the cave of Adullam, 57, and when Saul, uh, Saul's men met David at his house, Psalm 59. All right, that's it. Thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. You didn't have to sit back down. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.